Good evening. Welcome to the Critical Hour. We're coming to you from the capital of the United States of America, Washington, D.C., here on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, political scientist, author, and nationally syndicated columnist, Dr. Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, political analyst, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. For the next two hours, we will explore and analyze the salient news stories that are impacting the global village in which we live. President Biden arrives in Israel on what's considered a high-stakes Middle East trip to boost ties. He's set to meet with leaders of Israel, Saudi Arabia, and other allies and partners in the region during this four-day trip. The Washington Post writes, Joe Biden and Israel go way back. As he began his 10th trip to the Holy Land, he can look back on vistas and visits as a senator and vice president, spanning almost five decades and nearly a dozen prime ministers. Well, my question is, if he has all of this history, why doesn't he use his leverage for positive change instead of maintaining the status quo? Well, for insight, let's turn to our first guest. He's a radio Sputnik news analyst, and he joins us from Jerusalem, Wyatt Reed, Wyatt, welcome back. Happy to be here. Thanks again for having me. So Biden arrived in Israel today to kick off his trip to the Middle East that his administration hopes will bolster U.S. ties in the region, but could yield limited progress on what are considered American priorities. Uh, Wyatt, what's the sense on the ground? Uh, Beyond the camera angles, there is a lot of tension and conflict that's not being covered, let alone addressed. Well, sure. We heard the opening remarks from Joseph Biden today after he landed in Tel Aviv. Uh, It was largely a defense of historic ties between the U.S. and Israel. Uh, He described the connection between the two regimes as bone deep and uh, said, you don't need to be a Jew to be a Zionist. Uh, And, you know, basically uh, in the remarks between Biden, between Israeli President Isaac Herzog and Israeli Prime Minister Yair Lapid, we heard a great deal of, of emphasis on this, the depth of these relations uh, Yair Lapid described Biden as, quote, a great Zionist. He said he's one of the best friends Israel has ever known. So uh, that was kind of the the angle so far. I think that might have been meant in some way at uh, quieting crowds in Israel who maybe don't see Biden as necessarily as effective of an advocate for their interests as uh, Trump was, who obviously was responsible for moving the U.S. embassy to Jerusalem a number of provocative actions um, that really uh, turned off Palestinians but were greeted very warmly by a large percentage of the Israeli population. So in terms of the substance, they announced uh, a a forthcoming joint collaborative effort aimed at technological uh, coordination between Israel and the U.S. Uh, We expect to see more progress probably made in terms of normalization of ties between uh, the Gulf state monarchies like Saudi Arabia and and uh, Israel. And we also expect to see uh, quite possibly what could be referred to as a Quds declaration that is certifying the U.S. and Israeli shared commitment to preventing Iran from ever acquiring nuclear weapons. 
so that will certainly be a big angle here in the coming days. Biden is scheduled to uh, spend the next couple of days here in uh, in Jerusalem and then will, uh, I believe, meet with Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas in Ramallah on Friday. That is widely expected to be met with protests. A uh, number of, uh, of billboards have been erected uh, throughout the country by Palestinian uh, activists um, calling attention to this kind of responsibility they say the U.S. bears as Israel's biggest backer for things like the uh, assassination of Palestinian-American journalist Shireen Abu Akhla uh, for really recurring sort of crimes that are committed on a, on a daily basis and met with you know, impunity by the Israeli justice system, uh, crimes against Palestinian people. I just spoke uh, last night outside the Damascus Gate with uh, a young man, and and I was f- pretty struck by the conversation. Uh, his name was Omar Tawil. He was he's a um, 17-year-old who uh, just earlier this year got out of prison, where he was uh, imprisoned for 10 months by the Israeli forces for allegedly having thrown a rock at Israeli soldiers. Um, you know, and I was struck, first of all, by just how young he was. Um, and second of all, I was kind of struck by the lack of anger, the lack of outrage. You know, he spoke to me as, as you know, as somebody who really didn't seem to ha- hold much hate in his heart, despite uh, what would strike many observers as some pretty egregious mistreatment uh, by the judicial system here. Um, you know, you don't necessarily encounter a hatred for uh, you know, Israeli people. Um, but there is certainly a quite a bit of anger at the Israeli system, which so many people here in Palestine say is apartheid. Do you think that another part of Biden here is, you know, they've got the new prime minister, Lapid or Lapid, however it's pronounced. Do you think part of it is showing that, you know, kind of giving this guy some support, saying that, you know, reminding, you know, I guess the people that the U.S. empire is is supporting uh, their latest prime minister in what seems to be, you know, uh, let's just say they have a lot of turnover. Yeah, I think that's putting it mildly. I agree, though, that certainly seems to be the case. This is kind of a in case of the U.S. coming in and showing this, uh, showing some some uh, giving yeah support and credence to the new administration, demonstrating a kind of continuity. Um, you know, obviously uh, there has been uh, a, a lot here in, in terms of Israeli domestic politics over the past couple of weeks um, with this uh, vote of no confidence, the Israeli uh, government being dissolved and then reincorporated. Um, it is it is important to note that that is kind of the function that the U.S. serves is is to legitimize um, and help give uh, this regime the kind of legitimacy that it might not otherwise have in terms of international audiences, especially uh, in a moment like this moments of crisis. Uh, you know, there is this understanding that the the Israelis will always be able to lean on Joe Biden. In fact. Uh, he famously stated at one point uh, years ago that if there were no Israel, the United States of America would have to create her. So, uh, you know, in terms of how uh, Biden sees Israel, how Israel sees Biden, Biden was uh, kind of bragging about having visited Israel before 
the first U.S. president to do so a year before uh, Richard Nixon did so uh, in the early 70s. Um, and, you know, he he really emphasized that this was his 10th visit to Israel, that really that Israel has no greater friend. And that was the refrain that you heard um, in response by the Israeli officials. Going back to the uh, assassination of Sharin Abu Akleh, the U.S. put out a statement earlier in the month that Israel did not intentionally kill her, even though it was likely responsible. And now... Tony Blinken spoke recently on the phone with her family and invited the family to come to Washington to meet directly with administration officials. But Biden is there in the country. And so the family has asked to meet with him, as I understand it, the family has asked to meet with him while he's in Israel and the administration does not seem to want to do that. Uh, do you understand that to be the case? And can you speak to the dynamics involved in all of that? Yeah, that doesn't surprise me. In fact, I think this meeting, or rather the phone call that was held between U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken and the family members of the, that slain Palestinian journalist, uh, arguably might have come as a as a consequence of these critical letters that were sent by Senate Democrats, um, including even Cory Booker and Bob Menendez, who said that it was troubling that uh, President Biden had failed to provide details of the investigation to the family um, and and had failed to uh, speak with her so far. Um, so that that certainly, you know, that's an, there's an interesting aspect in terms of, in terms of the timing here. And that's uh, whether or not, uh, you know, Akla's family, uh, I, I mean, I don't think it's a surprise that that Biden is is refusing to meet with their family, because uh, obviously anything that they do to draw greater attention uh, to the crimes uh, apparently committed by the Israeli occupation forces against that journalist uh, would not serve to serve the interests of this trip in any meaningful way. I don't I don't think that uh, really there is any intention of attempting to actually push through uh, a two state solution, as the United States likes to say that they want to pursue. Uh, in fact, we even heard a kind of confirmation of that uh, from Blinken when he said that um, that that was not, you know, at the top of their list of priorities, that um, they're effectively trying to cement the, these partnerships as uh, the Abraham, so-called Abraham Accords, and that uh, really doesn't uh, fit into the agenda in such, in in that sense. Um, you know, I yeah, I do uh, obviously think that this would be possible. You know, we know that the niece of of Shireen Abu Akla is here in Jerusalem as we speak. Um, it certainly seems plausible uh, that the the president would have time to speak with the family. Uh, if, if anything, you know, just for 10, 15 minutes, uh, they're in the same city. So, yeah, I think that's a, a very indicative of the attitude from the U.S. authorities so far. How long is the president going to be there? Are there any major events coming up that you know of and anything that you're going to be attending? Yeah, so Biden will be here until Friday. Uh, he is heading to Ramallah, I believe, on Friday, uh, where he'll speak with the uh, Palestinian Authority president. Um, I know that, yeah, that that 
will be expected to be widely protested. And I do plan on attending those protests uh, to get a sense, really, for Palestinian attitudes regarding uh, this trip um, in terms of the uh, broader timeline. We know that this is this is kind of a broader trip to the Middle East. Uh, Biden plans after this to go to Saudi Arabia um, in what a lot of observers have characterized as kind of a visit to beg for oil uh, from the country and the leader who he promised just a couple of years ago to turn into an international pariah. That uh, has uh, since left the table in terms of the agenda, it seems. And now uh, Biden has quite a new tune, although his administration is um, taking pains to publicly de- declare uh, or refer to this to this visit to Saudi Arabia as not a, a meeting with the Saudis, but a meeting at which the Saudis will be present. <laughs> um, so I think they're kind of trying to walk this tightrope. Uh, and you see that, I think, and I think that's reflected even in the positions of somebody like Bob Menendez, right? Who's, they're able to read uh, the writing on the wall, uh, and they understand that there is uh, this forceful moral condemnation coming from the left flank of the party uh, regarding Israeli war crimes, um, regarding uh, Israeli occupation in general. Uh, and they know that they have to maintain this kind of uh, moral posture, this posture of moral righteousness, if they're going to be able to talk with any authority on, uh, for example, what's happening in Ukraine, right? Um, so I think there is a kind of a balancing act happening in the party where publicly, um, you know, there is no real distance between the Biden administration and the Israelis. They seem to get pretty much whatever it is they ask for. Um, and, uh, but, you know, we do know that this this distance between figures like Ilhan Omar, right, um, and and the more conservative Democrats in the establishment, that is a source of contention. Uh, and I have a feeling, you know, I certainly haven't seen anything to publicly confirm this, uh, but I have a feeling that the kind of uh, back, t- you know, uh, the agreement sort of under the table here is that the the Israelis will go along with with whatever's happening with the Democrats and not get not concern themselves too much as long as the Democrats maintain this opposition to restoring the Iranian nuclear deal, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, which I think is probably why you see so little movement on that, uh, despite a great deal of public bluster. Wyatt Reed, as always, thank you so much for your time. Look forward to having you back. Be safe. Appreciate it. Thanks so much, guys. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. RT reports John Bolton admits to planning foreign coups. The former senior White House official said overthrowing governments takes a lot of work. 
Well, what are we to make of this? Well, for insight, we turn to our next guest. He's an American human rights, labor rights lawyer and peace activist. He has contributed articles to Counterpunch, The Huffington Post and Telesur. He teaches international human rights at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. His latest book is entitled Canceled This Book, The Progressive Case Against Cancel Culture. Dan Kovalik, as always, Dan, welcome back. Thank you so much for having me. So speaking to CNN's Jake Tapper yesterday, former U.S. National Security Advisor John Bolton took credit for attempting to oust foreign leaders, claiming he played a role in regime change efforts abroad while suggesting ex-President Donald Trump lacked the foresight to carry out his own putsch at home. Dan, this, to me, an amazing admission, because, first of all, isn't it illegal for American government officials to engage in the overthrow of foreign governments? Well, yes, I guess technically, but uh, it does seem that uh, that uh, regulation is honored in the breach, as we say, because Mm -hmm. the U.S. is constantly trying to overthrow other governments. And truthfully, they often don't even do a great job in hiding that intention, I Mm -hmm. think. Uh, Particularly during the Trump administration, they were much more open about their aims. Uh, uh, Particularly in regards to Venezuela, they were pretty open that, well, I mean, after all, they did uh, recognize uh, uh, a different president than the one that was elected, right, in Juan Guaido. So, they were pretty open in wanting to replace him uh, uh, over Maduro. So that you know, the Trump administration that Bolton worked for, <coughs> again, uh, was pretty open that, that that they wanted to overthrow uh, different governments. You know, John, I think it's a. Uh, uh, I mean, John Dan. Dan. I think it's a. I almost called you John Bolton. Um, it's interesting because I think it really clarifies the difference between the the the, the Democrat hawks and the Republican hawks. In that, uh, Tony Blinken was recently saying, "Yes, we're you know uh, sovereignty is important and we respect it, and um, big nations shouldn't be able to bull, uh, bully small nations." And and so they just flat out lie and say the opposite while they're trying to overthrow governments and run the world. They just try to say we're here for puppies and wonderful goodness and I guess chocolatey goodness or something like Hershey's. Whereas the Republican Hawks just they're just kind of knuckle draggers straight out. Hey, we're going to overthrow countries and take their oil and whatever else they got. You know, the only thing they don't say is like the old um, Athenians, we're going to kill all the men and sell the women and children into slavery. That's the only thing they leave out. But it's the, the, the rhetoric is different is what I'm saying. But the intent and the methods are the same then. Yeah, no, it's true. I mean, uh, you know, one stark example of this is that uh, uh, Trump actually got kudos from uh, uh, Assad in Syria when he said that the U.S. was going to stay in Syria to take their oil. And Assad said, well, you know, while I don't appreciate that, he just says, I do appreciate Trump's candor. He said he's the most honest president uh, that ever existed. Right. And, uh, Biden doesn't say those things, but meanwhile, the U S is still in Syria and still stealing its oil. So, I mean, I think you're absolutely right that, uh, in a certain way, the Republicans are more honest about their aims. When Tapper asked for specifics, Bolton refused to elaborate, but did go on to mention Venezuela, 
where U.S.-backed opposition figures attempted to overthrow Maduro in 2019. The efforts in Venezuela, quote, turned out not to be successful. Not that we had all that much to do with it, but I saw what it took for an opposition to try and overturn an illegally elected president, and they failed. I find that, A, that candor on one hand to be just astonishing, but even in his candor, he still lies. We didn't have that much to do with it. Well, who did? And why did you bring it up? John Bolton. <laughs> <laughs> Dan Kovac. But, you know, this also just shows, the to, to Garland's point, this just also shows the incredible uh, hubris, incredible arrogance. Mr. Farrakhan loves to say, one is 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 uh, blinded by never never underestimate the blindness that attends arrogance, and 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 this to me is just incredibly incredibly arrogant and dangerous. Yeah, well, absolutely. And John Bolton, of course, is one of the more dangerous people uh, uh, figures in 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 recent American history. Uh, in fact, it, you know, some people were shocked that Trump had named him uh, national security advisor because he was an avowed neocon, right? And mm-hmm. and Trump, at least during his campaign, was critical of the neocons and the neocon wars. And yet he uh, appointed uh, neocon really number one uh, to head up the National Security Council. And then, of course, um he also appointed Elliot Abrams to be head of specifically Venezuela policy. Elliot Abrams being one of the more nefarious characters also in recent U- U.S. history uh, who helped cover up the genocide in, in, in Guatemala and the atrocities in El Salvador. And who, again, was very open about uh, his desire to overthrow uh, foreign governments. And the other thing I think you have to take into account here is CNN. Number one, they're always bringing John Bolton on. These are supposedly moderate or CNN or MSNBC is supposed to be moderation or centrist. They, they put themselves forward as that, right? And they bring on the hawkest of all hawks. And then he says, hey, yeah, we're throwing over countries and, you know, destroying everything. And they're just like, oh, OK, well, you know, well, that sounds interesting. All right. Now we're going to our next guest. The fact that in, in this country, they're so nonchalant about someone with all this talk about rules-based order, that someone's talking about international war crimes, and CNN just kind of yawns and goes on to their next, uh, you know, their next guest. But, but, that, but Garland, that's why I would, I would suggest that that's why they talk about rules-based order and not international yeah, law. Right. <laughs> Good point. Dan? Yeah, well, it's absolutely true. I mean, I think the one thing that there's consensus on between the so-called liberals and the so-called conservatives is war. Both of them support it. Both of them support regime change. Um, And their coverage, their news coverage reflects that. Uh, There's almost uh, unanimous consensus on those issues. And certainly that's reflected in Congress as well in terms of their 
uh, very, you know, their willingness to to spend the monies they do on the military and to spend the monies they do on, again, regime change operations. There, there's almost no dissenters in all of Congress on this. And again, there's almost no dissenters in the media on this. Looking at this from a broader perspective, uh, Maria Zakharova, spokesperson for, uh, for the Russian government, she says, I do not remember any other person who occupied such senior positions and was directly responsible for the international policy of the United States, would plainly say that he planned coup d'etats in other countries. Once again, not supporting the democratic forces, not promoting democracy, pluralism, etc., but like that for a person who has been in a position of power in the administration of different presidents to say in such an open and arrogant way that he was involved in planning coups abroad, I do not remember. And she went on to say, it is important to know in which other countries the United States planned coups. So looking at this from the broad in terms of how this is received in other countries, not that this is shocking to them because they all know this better than we do. But I think what what her larger point, and as she said, is the fact that you were just so brazen to say this so simply and clearly and publicly, you know, particularly after President Biden said, you know, that that Putin had to go and then wants to try to walk that back. This is very dangerous stuff. No, this is incredibly dangerous, uh, especially, by the way, when you're talking about trying to remove a foreign leader in Putin who, uh, you know, whose country controls about 4,000 nuclear warheads. I mean, you're really risking a nuclear war in, in just saying that sort of thing. But, I mean, the, the point is well taken that for a world leader – to openly say that he's been trying to overthrow foreign governments is stunning. And as, as we said, it's stunning, too, at how nonchalantly people are receiving this. I mean, it should be – honestly, if we, had, if we had a decent Congress, they would immediately open up hearings on this and immediately subpoena Bolton to appear before them and talk to them about all the plans that he was involved with uh, uh, in terms of coup d'etat. I mean, that would be uh, legitimate. I mean, they're having hearings now on the, you know, again, several hour insurrection that took place on the Capitol on January 6th. And I think this at least warrants that type uh, of attention. You know, one country that I have to say that comes to mind in all this is Nicaragua. Mm Mm-hmm. In 2018, they had very severe unrest in which 200 people were killed, uh, millions of dollars of, of, of property destruction happened, and the government claimed that the, it was a coup attempt. And the U.S. And, and its compliant media have mocked that claim and said, oh, Danny Ortega, the president, is, you know, he's paranoid. There was no coup attempt. Well, meanwhile, yeah, Bolton, who also was very open about wanting to get rid of Ortega, admitting he was involved in coup attempts, Mm -hmm. people should look at at that and say, well, maybe he was involved in Nicaragua as well. 
And again, I think congressional hearings are warranted on this. What if you tie this to Mike Pompeo's ridiculous statements last week regarding the United States and war and God's people and all of that manifest destiny kind of kind of foolishness? I mean, this 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 demonstrates an incredibly dangerous mindset. Yeah, well, it shows that this manifest destiny and Monroe doctrine uh, while they seem like, uh, you know, things of yesteryear, they, they, they continue to motivate U.S. foreign policy from the top down. I think it's deep within the DNA of the American people to believe that we run the world, that we have the God-given right to run the world, and that we have a right to determine what other, other countries' governments look like. I mean, it's an incredible thing. Again, I do think that this is one of the biggest news stories in a long time, this admission by Bolton, and yet, again, very few people are treating it as such. And, and let me just read the headline of a story from uh, June twenty second, 2021, in The Hill. Putin accuses U.S. of organizing 2014 Ukraine coup. So I guess John Bolton now is, uh, what are they going to say? He's talking, he's uh, uh, Dan, we, we got about one minute. Apparently he's doing, uh, spouting, uh, uh, what is it, Russian talking points now. Yeah, maybe Putin's behind this. I'm sure that will be the next claim that the Democrats will have, that Bolton is some sort of willing stooge of Putin. But I mean, again, I mean, uh, it's important and good that people like Bolton are so arrogant as to is to admit the truth, because a lot of us know this has been happening, as you said, uh, Wilmer, countries that are victims of this certainly are well aware of it. And it's important that the American people are. Again, I, I don't think this issue should be dropped. I think uh, we should push for congressional hearings. We need to bring this stuff to light, just like Senator Frank Church did in the 1970s with the CIA. We need that type of, of hearing again. And another place where this is rampant and just incredibly cancerous is Haiti. Mm -hmm. uh, Dan Kovalik. Of course. Dan Kovalik, yes. as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate uh, your analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Thank you so much. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. RT reports Sergei Politeyev. By fall, the result of the first phase of the Ukraine conflict will be clear. What comes next is up to the West. Russia is winning in Ukraine, but the desire to avoid mobilization means the advance is moving slowly. What do people need to understand about this effort? Well, for insight, let's turn to our next guest. He's a writer at the Polemicist.net and Counterpunch. He's the author of Ukraine Negotiation Kabuki. J Dr. Jim Cavanaugh. As always, Jim, welcome back. Thanks for having me. Before we get to that, RT reports John Bolton admitted yesterday to planning foreign coups. The former senior White House official said overthrowing government governments takes a lot of work. Uh, your thought on this admission, Jim Cavanaugh? 
Yeah, well, he said, I quote, as someone who has helped plan coup d'etat, not here, but, you know, other places, it takes a lot of work. So uh, it's interesting that he just comes out and says it, you know, not, not, not news to anybody. He was responding to the point about whether we should consider January 6th the coup where Donald Trump was trying to mount a coup, and he was saying, this is not what a coup looks like. I'll tell you what a coup looks like. I'll tell you what kind of work it does. Donald Trump didn't do the work that would make it possible. So uh, it is interesting, and it just demonstrates, you know, he's a guy, as many people in the United States foreign policy establishment and the national security establishment, whose job it was to overthrow governments and plan coups. And that's what he said, and it's good for us to have him state it blatantly. You know, uh, uh, the other thing is, and moving into that to Ukraine, you know, this thing went bad, um, really, really went bad in 2014 when the U.S. instituted a coup against Ukraine. And, you know, it's bad enough to coup some small country in Africa or um, or or South America. It's immoral. It's evil. It's all of the above. Right. But when you start doing that on the border of another superpower and then pumping that country full of missiles and weapons and threatening that superpower, it's downright insane. And it's extinction level insane, Jim. Yeah. You know, I make a distinction between coup d'etat and insurrection. For me, I always thought of coup d'etat as kind of a small group, like a military coup, usually. A group of officers, generals take over the country or some small faction, uh, you know, knocks off the current leader and takes over the country. Insurrection has a mass following of some kind. Now, it doesn't mean, you know, the, 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 the 2014 events in Ukraine, there was a mass following in the West, in Western Ukraine. Because a lot of people were ideologizing, they oh, we're going to become European. It's all going to be cool. We're going to be just like France and Italy, uh, and and that was some phony stuff that that Yanukovych and the leaders knew wasn't going to happen, and it was going to be exactly the opposite. That, that, that coming in, moving into the neoliberal EU order was going to destroy the living standards of most people, and so. But there was a. But the United States was able to manipulate it. So I'm just saying, it takes a lot. That's why. Bolton is right. It takes some doing to manipulate, you know, a bunch of guys in the military to overthrow the government. It takes more doing to get 10,000 people in the street who want to overthrow the government, okay? And the United States is able to do both things, has been able to do both things. That's what color revolutions were about. They were working with real dissatisfactions of people and getting something which had uh, a temporary or limited mass following to overthrow a government. So it's a complicated process, you know, and they got very good at it and at every, at every level. And that's what we have to realize, you know, you're not re- at, at the operational level there. You're dealing with people and with organizations that have uh, a lot of institutional time. They build up NGOs for decades. They build up relationships with elites and with military people and bring them to study. So they have a lot of ties with a lot of people at different levels of society that enable them to push politics in the direction that they want, even to the point of overthrowing the government. And that's what happened in Ukraine in uh, 2014 and what a lot of the color revolutions were. And people are kind of hip to that now. They understand what goes on here and they got to watch out for it. Like, you know, Sri Lanka, who knows what's going on there right now? It's a little complicated. But so this is a 
it's it's a it's a complicated work, and John Bolton is right. You can't just be a fool. And Donald Trump had no possibility of doing that in the United States, January two thousand twenty-one. And uh, and what we have to, you know, this is what we have to be watching and looking very carefully and studying what's going on in other countries. You know, one of the things that to me you you take away from Bolton's admission is. A lot of the conflict and a lot of the problems that the United States continues to battle are fights that the United States started. And this is something that I don't that, that you know, I'm surprised Jake Tapper. Well, I'm not surprised. That, that's kind of rhetorical. Jake Tapper didn't point out, wait a minute. We're the ones starting these fights by overthrowing these governments. And then we have to go to the taxpayers and claim we need billions and billions and billions of dollars to fight and battle the fight that we started. We're putting out fires that we started. Yeah, look, in 2014, the Yanukovych government was wanted to deal with both Russia and the EU. And it was the United States that said, that said no, they wanted to push a confrontation with Russia. They wanted to make sure that Ukraine was broken from Russia and was moving into NATO. And that's what a lot of the kind of mass following in the Western Ukraine, people who were liberals and who wanted to become part of liberal social democratic Europe, didn't understand what's going on, but was going on, and they're waking up to that now. So, uh, you know, this is what, 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 what happens. Uh, they started, and, you know, Russia wasn't trying to take over Ukraine. They proposed for eight years the Minsk Agreement, Minsk II, the Normandy format. It was Ukraine with the backing of the United States that refused to abide by that. So the United States has been seeking a confrontation with Russia for a long time, and they got it. And, uh, but, you know, uh, they were able to becloud that in a fog of ideological discourse about freedom, democracy, independence, you know, blah, 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 uh, hiding all the Nazis that were involved. And uh, now, you know, it's, it, 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 the American people are now, oh, we've got to give it. You know, Zelensky's going around to American and European governments. We need you got to give me five billion dollars a month because otherwise, the, first of all, the economy's no no good anyway. It's a, it's already a client state of the United States, completely dependent state of the EU and the United States. And now they have to pay for the war, and they have to pay for the social services of Ukrainians. And American people had no idea this was coming, but this is what their government and their foreign policy apparatus and their national security intelligence apparatus gets them into. Yeah, and and the other thing, I think it demonstrates something, and that is that the two things, the U.S. now is fully in the grip of the neocons. Joe Biden is, in fact, a neocon, and that under neocon rule, um, all people are viewed, all countries, all people are viewed as chess pieces, including the people of the home country. The neocons see um, the uh, Ukrainians as disposable, dispensable items to be burned up for their for their neocon fantasies. But if you look at what they're doing to the Europeans economically, they're doing the exact same things. And if we look at home, you can make an argument with our economy crashing, all of our money going to the neocon, uh, you know, fantasy that they're treating us, the American people as chess pieces saying you guys got to suffer as long as necessary so that our fantasy of ruling the world can continue, Jim. Yeah, since the demise of the Soviet Union, they explicitly set out the rule that they were not going to allow any power to rise in any region of the world which would threaten American dominance in any region of the world. 
And that's their game. And they insist on that. They're continuing to insist on that. They cannot win that. <laughs> they can't win it against China. They can't win it against Russia. And so to have this, first of all, Eurasian landmass, they are not going to dominate unless they destroy this Russia and break it up, which they want to do. <laughs> and the Russians know that. And, uh, and they, they, it, it's hard economically. It became harder and harder to prevent the integration of the European economies with the economies of Russia and China, which were providing essential goods and services. And so American power was waning and is waning. And they don't have a way of reversing that except by blowing a lot of stuff up and causing forcing people into wars that are going to be destructive to them, which is what they're doing with Europe. And I don't know where it's going to go because it's extremely dangerous. They, uh, they, they keep upping the ante rhetorically and really. They put more, more American forces and NATO forces and they expand NATO. And Sweden gets up and says, I saw something about Sweden. Talk, oh, we understand that nuclear weapons are part of, essential part of NATO defense, which means Sweden is going to accept nuclear weapons on their territory aimed at Russia. That's nuts. They didn't become safer. They become, they became, they put themselves more at risk. So, but you know, this is a, this is now with Ukraine and with the Russians kind of calling the question on NATO expansion and on American uh, unipolar hegemony. The question has been called and the United States has to decide how it's going to react to it. And a very strong element of American foreign policy apparatus wants to react by saying, we've got to fight them to the last Ukrainian. And if it goes beyond that to the last U- U- uh, European and, uh, thinking it won't come to a last American, but it will very quickly. And is there another, is there another strong element of the American apparatus who's saying, no, we have to accept the fact that it's no longer a unipolar world? I don't think there is. And I don't know what, what, what to do about that. Getting back to the original article, uh, RT reports, Sergei uh, Poletayev says, by fall, the rest of the first phase of the Ukraine conflict will be clear. What comes next is up to the West. Last weekend, the territory of the Lugansk People's Republic was completely liberated from Ukrainian control. This is not only a symbolic stage in the entire battle for Donbass, but also the completion of a significant military operation. Your thoughts, Dr. Kavanaugh? Well, you know, this was a very good article, I thought, because, it, you know, it, 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 it wasn't Pollyannish at all from the Russian side. It was saying, look, uh, we haven't gotten done. We haven't gotten Donetsk back yet. Donetsk is still under uh, under fire every day. We have to push those forces. The Russian forces have to push those forces back at least twenty more, thirty more kilometers, and it's been very slow going. You know, they're saying they, they, the Ukrainians are are getting weapons that are, you know, they're they're hitting some of our uh, uh, ammunition dumps. That's not nothing. You know, it's not going to turn the tide, but they're slowing down the Russian advance. And, you know, if they build up enough sufficient forces in, in Odessa, uh, they could uh, seriously slow down the Russian advance. So, and the Russians don't want full mobilization. We declare war on Ukraine. We're going to go, which would be, which would allow them to break through faster and achieve their goals faster. So we're at a stage where you know, this is slower than anybody wants it to be, and it 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 it, it leaves room for all of uh, for for delaying tactics that theoretically go on forever. Mm-hmm. You know, Ukraine can't defeat the Russians, but the Americans and NATO can make sure 
you know, and Russia doesn't want to overrun all Ukrainian territory, but the, the Russians and, and, and NATO could make it very, very difficult for them to get okay. the established position that they need to even in the south uh, of Ukraine. Dr. Jim Cavanaugh, as always, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Look forward to having you back. Thank you. Folks, you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Chaos in Sri Lanka after protesters seize prime minister's office. The images coming from Sri Lanka are extraordinary. Protesters are wrestling on the president's bed, cooking on his sprawling lawns and in his swimming pool. The public outrage is all aimed squarely at President Gotabaya Raja Paksa, whose administration has left Sri Lanka begging for a cash bailout from the IMF after defaulting on foreign debt for the first time since it became independent from Britain. Is this, as the National Review reports, the real world consequences of government central planning? For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He's a peace activist, writer and teacher. K.J. No, as always, K.J., welcome back. Thank you. Pleasure to be with you. Before we get to your analysis of what's going on in Sri Lanka, I wanted to quickly get your take on John Bolton admitting to planning foreign coups. The uh, He was interviewed yesterday on CNN by Jake Tapper. He's a former U.S. national security advisor taking credit for attempting to overthrow foreign governments. Uh, your thoughts, K.J. No. Well, it's, it's, you know, probably clear that he was involved. Certainly he, uh, you know, had stakes in Venezuela, for example. But, um, you know, I think the best way to summarize John Bolton is that the North Koreans uh, referred to him as a blood-sucking vampire. And I would say that that is actually unfair to vampires. <laughs> Yeah. You know, the other thing that I think that has to be taken from this is, A, the casual nature by which he made this statement and the way that it was received in a country, in a culture where people are cognizant of their place in the world and of respecting, as, as Tony Blinken has been saying the last few days, the sovereignty of other nations, there should be an uproar. There should be congressional investigations. They should be on every news channel saying this, uh, you know, cannot be dealt with. Instead, there's just a collective yawn other than people like us who tend to be anti-imperialist and tend to oppose war and believe in some level of justice, which uh, we seem to be a very small minority these and, days. And Joe, and Joe Biden, who is right now on an international tour, he should be at the, as soon as he got off the plane onto the tarmac in, in, in Ben Gurion Airport in Israel, he should have been, hey, time out, folks. This is not what we do. No, no, no. Even though we know that's what we do. Yeah, well, this, is, <laughs> this is not what we do. No, no, no. Th wrong thing to say. 
KJ. Yes, I mean it's it's striking that they don't even bother to say that that we they don't come out and have these you know large hypocritical statements about this is not what we stand for we do not overthrow governments of course of course we know that's the case empire is fundamentally opposed to national sovereignty and it only raises the issue of sovereignty when it's a useful hammer or cudgel to beat against its opponents so I think the hypocrisy again pardon my repetition is off the charts uh, and the fact that this is being passed over with a yawn uh, tells us everything that we don't want to know about this government and the people who inhabit it. So let's talk about Sri Lanka. Uh, is this, as uh, it was reported, is this the real world consequence of government central planning? Because I think China's government centrally plans. I think the Russian government centrally plans. Their economies seem to be doing fairly well. So when the National Review says that this is the real world consequence of government central planning, as though just to make that blanket statement that that type of uh, economic structure is inherently flawed. Am I misreading that, KJ? No. No, it's a completely ideological statement. That's not journalism. It's uh, ideological propaganda. I mean, the simple fact is that uh, it was doing quite well. There were there was a perfect storm of issues that hit the country. Not to say that, you know, the governance or the administration was perfect, but there was a series of perfect storms. First, were, uh, was, uh, there was a certain level of indebtedness, and that indebtedness was not huge relative to GDP. There are at least I would say at least half the, you know, the G7 countries are much more indebted than Sri Lanka. But it had a short-term liquidity crisis, and the liquidity crisis was leveraged as a way of pulling it over the table. And now the IMF wants to come back in and, uh, you know, uh, privatize and force structural adjustment. This is the 17th. Uh, actually, this would be the 18th IMF intervention in Sri Lanka. So clearly, it's not working. But the protesters on the streets are asking for the IMF to intervene. And that is a very, very strange protest. In all my life, I've never seen a popular protest that asks for the IMF to intervene. Usually, the protests are against the IMF. So that lets you know that there's something very, very strange, very inorganic about what is going on. Well, one of the things that I would have to suspect, and as has been the case in many instances, the the U.S.-led regime change machine, and this is my suspicion, I'll throw it out to you. One of the things they tend to do is when there are, in fact, problems and um, organic protests or organic problems in a country, they take the opportunity to go in there and try to co-opt that, adding weapons, adding the rhetoric they want, adding the et cetera. So what do you think about the my suspicion that they looked at this, they saw this unrest, aha, perfect time for us to come in and add our spin to it. Yes, I think that's definitely true. But we also have to remember that there were large sums of money pumped by the NED into Sri Lanka to, quote unquote, prop up, you know, civil service or uh, uh, organization, CSOs uh, and NGOs. I mean, these are the vanguard of this protest. And they seem to have a very elite character, the people on the streets 
many of them seem to be affluent and wealthy. And so this, you know, again, you know, once again, uh, many, many questions arise from this. But uh, a couple of things here. One is that there is a fuel crisis. There was a fuel crisis uh, and a debt crisis. And the president had just signed an agreement with Russia to uh, receive Russian fuel uh, four days uh, uh, before these protests uh, broke out. And so the timing of this is very, very suspicious. I think that there is, I think there are uh, definitely an agenda uh, happening here. Uh, clearly, there are elements that look like, uh, you know, a color revolution. Uh, uh, and the fact that they are asking for the IMF to intervene, I mean, that's uh, extraordinary. The other thing that I will point out is that in 2018, the U.S. Sri Lanka Status of Forces Agreement was signed so that the United States could put up a base in Sri Lanka. It needs a base because the Chagos Islands is, uh, is, may not be able to be sustained over the long term. And the U.S. wants another base in the Indian Ocean. And this uh, U.S. Status of Forces Agreement ran into problems. And so, uh, you know, will this protest change the outcome? Uh, will uh, U.S. base be the result of this? I think these are very interesting questions to ask and things to monitor. There is a piece in Yahoo Finance, Sri Lanka's economic collapse ringing alarm bells for emerging markets. And one of the things that got my attention is uh, in this piece is talking about the uh, Sri Lankan's president is resigning. With heavy spending, rising inflation, and lavish tax breaks, all forcing his government to default on its sovereign debt. I thought they were writing about the United States when they talked about heavy spending, rising inflation, and lavish lavish tax breaks. But is this a uh, bellwether for what's befalling other countries, particularly when we look at what's happening in Europe? Well, you know, you know, there are people who are saying that this could be like an Asia crisis. You know, one country falls and then it triggers a series of defaults across uh, the globe. And they've named some of the countries. They haven't actually named, uh, you know, the G7 uh, as, as potentially in crisis. But I think that we are facing a systemic problem in the global economy created by 40 years of hollowing out uh, of neoliberalism and, uh, you know, extractive, exploitative, uh, you know, rapacious uh, expropriation uh, by, by, by the empire. I think this is the fundamental reason. This is a crisis of capitalism, but, but specifically related to Sri Lanka. You know, once again, I want to emphasize that this is a short-term liquidity crisis. It is not a systemic uh, problem inside uh, Sri Lanka's debt structure, which is actually much less uh, than many other countries. And so I think we have to balance out uh, this and understand uh, some of the ways in which, for example, uh, global capital is seeking to, uh, you know, apply a shock doctrine to Sri Lanka, both for geopolitical and geoeconomic uh, advantage. I probably should have been clearer with my question because actually the basis of my question was not looking at the debt issue, which I'll put that on the government side 
of the equation. I was really referring more to the public reaction to the crisis. And now we find people swimming in the president's pool, wrestling on his bed and cooking on his lawn. Uh, When we look at what happened most recently in Brussels, uh, 80,000 people in the street protesting NATO. When we look at what Italy is facing, when we look at what's going on, Germany uh, having with Russia shutting uh, doing maintenance on the pipeline and that causing a disruption to access to natural gas. Uh, it looks like people people in Europe are getting angry. And so I was really looking at it more from a reaction of the public than the cause by the government. Yes, well, I mean, definitely people in Europe are angry and they've been angry for a very, very long time, at least uh, since the 1990s, if not sooner. I mean, the Yellow Vest a protest was all about the outrage at the government, and you know it came close to bringing down the government. So yes, uh, there is tremendous outrage, there's tremendous discontent, there's tremendous suffering all across Europe, which is supposed to be the imperial capitalist core, which is supposed to have a higher standard of living due to its, you know, um, worker aristocracy. But uh, once again, I want to emphasize that uh, Sri Lanka is both part of that and there's an element of that that should be disaggregated because these protests are not as organic as they seem. They're definitely, uh, you know, some kind of Western intervention. They are, uh, they have the character of a color revolution. And just to give you one example, uh, you know, I'll read you the Inter-University Students Federation statement. They said the president and the prime minister should be held responsible for the damage to the president's house and the buildings, because if they had resigned, the protesters wouldn't have occupied these premises and such damage would not have taken place. This is the kind of absurdity that you heard in Hong Kong. And it's the kind of juvenile uh, posturing that is very common when the U.S. unleashes color revolution protesters. KJ No, as always, thank you so much for your time. We always appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Thank you. Always a pleasure. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, and I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's another hour on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. South China Sea, this is according to the South China Morning Post. Beijing says U.S. seriously infringed on its sovereignty after warships sail near Paracels. China has accused the United States of infringing on its territorial waters after an American guided missile destroyer sailed near the disputed Paracel Islands in the South China Sea yesterday. Folks, the U.S. keeps swatting the hornet's nest. The outcome won't be a positive one. For insight, let's turn to our next guest. He's a journalist, social activist, international business consultant, chemical engineer, George Koo. As always, George, welcome back. Thank you. It's nice to be back. 
So the USS Benfold has been asserting its right to navigate through the waters under international law. The U.S. 7th Fleet said in a statement, it is it said restrictions on innocent passage imposed by China and other claimants to the islands breached international law. A vessel conducts an innocent passage if it does not harm the peace, order, or security of a coastal state under the U.N. Convention of the Law of the Sea, a treaty signed by China and Vietnam, but not the U.S. George, the U.S. loves to tout the fictional rules-based order and then claims uh, that it is protected under treaties that it's not a signatory to when that narrative fits its interests. Yep. It's the, the rule of order as defined by the U.S., whether they're party to or not, doesn't matter when it's convenient, they, ins- they invoke it. Um, you know, the, you, you just read about innocent passage. Now, to, to any of us, innocent pas- passage would mean a... Um, a, a cruise ship, a commercial going vessel, from exactly going from A to B and with no no hostile intentions. Well, this this destroyer bristling with guns and missiles, cruising back and forth on the uh, going around in circles in the South China Sea. You know, one would think that that hardly qualifies as an innocent passage. Number one and number two. U.S. keep invoking unclosed the U.N. law of the sea, but they they never agree to it and they never want to abide by the restrictions. They criticize China for the nine dotted lines. I think most people probably have forgotten or not aware it used to be 11 dotted lines when China was under the nationalist government. And the eleven dollar line was recognized by the United States. So that the fact that that was part of China was, had a long established precedence, you know, precedence even uh, by, uh, before World War Two. It became nine dollar line because China and Vietnam negotiated and removed the two dotted lines that was between Vietnam and China. And they did that amicably uh, after some uh, negotiation discussions. So there, there's no no grounds for the U.S. to take uh, the, the position they have. And when China was weak 10, 20 years ago, they kind of close one eye on on the uh, battleships and destroyers cruising around South China Sea. But in the meantime, they have quietly built, do landfill and build up some of those islands. And now they have um, guns and um, and weapons on those islands. And, you know, so it's becoming more dangerous because it's becoming more confrontational. And um, it's... Um, it's a potential to- uh, spark, uh, but it's really a spark if the U.S. decides to um, to start something, to to invoke it. 
The other thing is to argue that this is, quote, innocent passage. Here's an article right here just to throw in. U.S. to build anti-China missile network along the first island chain. You're surrounding China with missiles. Every other day, oh, they're doing something bad to the Uyghurs. The U.N. goes in and takes a look and says, ah, we didn't find anything. Ah, the U.N.'s screwing up. They don't know what they're talking about. The next day, Ping Shuin or whatever his name, her name is, it's the tennis player. Oh, the Chinese are doing something evil to her. And then that comes out. So every other day you're accusing China of God only knows what. You're surrounding them with missiles. You're threatening them every single day. And you're, you're literally saying they are our number one adversary. You've now dragged NATO into it to argue that this is innocent passage is preposterous. George. Yeah. And, then, and on top, uh, you, you are right on and absolutely right on. And on top of all that, they, they would um, periodically bring up Philippines because six years ago, the United States, this is uh, during the Aquino administration, United States pay, paid the bill to have an arbitration on the Scarborough uh, shores uh, in the dispute between Philippines and China. And the whole story that, most, again, most people don't know about is that this arbitration um, panel that um, um, they held a hearing on this dispute, they have offices in the international court so that as if they are a legitimate, legally binding organization, and they're not. By its very name as an arbitration panel, you have to have both sides agree to an arbitration, and China never agreed, never showed up, didn't have a say on who should be on the arbitration panel, and the, re- the outcome of the results was totally uh, not surprising because only one party showed up. So how do you rule? You rule in favor of the parties that showed up. But then when Duterte became president, he recognized the, the hollowness of that particular rule, and so he backed off and was wor- looking to work with China the new president seems to have um, uh, gone the other way. Apparently, he's been listening to Blinken and are now reasserting that they have a right because they won the arbitration. Well, um, the, whole, the, the whole story is never completely reported, whether it's AP or Asia Times or South China Morning Post. So it's important to let everybody know the complete story is that particular arbitration is bogus, no standing. To that point, uh, Marcos flexing muscles in the South China Sea. Uh, He has emphatically invoked international law on the sixth anniversary of its arbitration. So with all of that you just laid out, does Marcos does Marcos have a longer term strategy here? Because it doesn't seem as though his trying to stick his finger in China's eye is going to work out would work out well for the Philippines. So what's his what's his logic? Well, you know, he may be um, trying to play both sides because when he was running and when he first got elected, he pretty much went along with Duterte's line with China, which is to be friendly and to work with and to cooperate with China. That's what I thought. And this, yeah, and this recent change of tune 
Uh, apparently, he got he got talked into by by Blinken, and so this could be a, a an opening salvo to giving up the military base back to the U.S. because they kicked U.S. out uh, many years ago, or it could simply be a a, a Marco's effort to. Um, to work on to balance himself on a nice edge and try to have it on both ways. You know, today I'm I'm not friendly to China, and then tomorrow I'll take it all back and and see what else happens. Um, it's hard to say. It's he it which way he's going to go. I mean, it certainly doesn't sound very friendly right now. And isn't isn't Duterte's daughter the vice president of the Philippines? Yeah, I mean that was. Um, you know, apparently that was a, uh, that was a ticket to ensure that Marcos would be elected. And um, we, you and I know that politicians, <laughs> whatever they say, is not worth much, right? You can't count on what politicians say today when tomorrow comes. And so, you know, having Duterte's daughter as a as the vice president. May have been a a, a a a marriage of convenience, shall we say? Let me put two things together. Here's an article from February 24th. South Korea to join sanctions against Russia. Now here's an article from July 7th. South Korea inflation galloping at 24-year high. I'm suspecting, based on what I'm seeing in Germany, in the UK, and around the world, that those two things are related. Uh, your thoughts? Well, yeah, um, inflation around the world is being caused by the war in Ukraine because, you know, the fertilizers are in shortage, the food supply are in shortage because both Ukraine and Russia are, are, are not exporting. So the, it, is, it is very much related. The new president of South Korea is, um, is a true lapdog of the United States. He doesn't seem to understand economics. And he's following the U.S. lead. You know, in, what did you say? The inflation is an all-time high. 24, 24-year high. Yeah. Well, that's nothing. The inflation in the United States is at a 40-year high. Can you top that? You know? <laughs> so he's, so he's, he's obviously following his, his model here and uh, whether he's going to pay the Pay, pay the pauper in, in, in due course remains to be seen, but I suspect that he's not going to last long because the rate of inflation in South Korea is even much higher than, in, than it is in the U.S. I think it's over 20%. We're, we're only at 9.1%, folks. <laughs> well, in fact, that, that was my next question is, what does this do to the South Korean landscape when we when we look at what's happening in Europe and in Britain in Britain for example uh, inflation is causing a great amount of uh, unrest and consternation uh, do you see this same type of reaction happening in South Korea well you know, you know the, the, the first basic rule that we've always learned and all have we have learned from the Clinton years is that it's the economy, stupid, mm-hmm. and and we always come back to that. You let the economics, you, you lose control of the economy, and you let inflation run rampant. 
people are going to be pissed off. They're going to be very dissatisfied, and they're going to look to throw you out. And, and that's inevitable. It's just a matter of sooner or later. But it happens until somebody else can come along and says, I have a better solution. You know, look at Sri Lanka, for example, right now. The people are up in rebellion and kicked out the leaders because the economy is so, you know, completely tanked. And they needed that to be resolved and resolved quickly. Oh, I think uh, just take a look at at, uh, at Sri Lanka. That's what Berlin and Paris and London are going to look like next. Yeah, hopefully it won't get that bad because, my goodness, if they start to invade the president, presidential palace and throwing out the leaders, we will have total chaos. And, and, and maybe maybe this that will be a chance for the American troops to go in and seize control and take over and really, really exercise hegemony. But uh, that that would be it. That would be a, a disaster of orders of magnitude too scary to behold. George Koo, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Thank you. Nice to, nice to talk to you, gentlemen. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Popular Resistance has a piece entitled The End of Western Civilization, and it opens as follows. The greatest challenge facing societies has always been how to conduct trade and credit without letting merchants and creditors make money by exploiting their customers and debtors. All antiquity recognized that the drive to acquire money is addictive and indeed tends to be exploitive and hence socially injurious. For insight into this, we turn to our next guest. He's a professor at Economics and Politics at St. Mary's College in California, the author of a number of books, the latest of which is The Scourge of Neoliberalism, U.S. Economic Policy from Reagan to Trump. He is Dr. Jack Rasmus. As always, Jack, welcome back. Always glad to join you. So the piece continues, the moral values of most societies opposed selfishness, above all in the form of avarice and wealth addiction, which the Greeks called philagoria, love of money, silver mania. Individuals and families indulging in conspicuous consumption tended to be ostracized, but it was recognized that wealth often was obtained at the expense of others, especially the weak. Well, Jack, that ain't the American way. Dr. Jack Rasmus. Yeah, well, you know, you got to understand that credit and debt is uh, central to the capitalist system, uh, especially in the 21st century. When we say that the system has financialized, a good part of that means that it's uh, being run on credit and debt uh, more than any any time before. 
you know, credit, you got to understand it a couple ways. Uh, credit and, you know, the opposite side of that coin is debt. You, uh, whoever issues credit to somebody, to somebody who got the credit then takes on a debt, right? Um, it's been important, uh, the expansion of credit and therefore debt on the consumer side has been important for capitalism uh, to uh, be able to reduce uh, its wage payments uh, to workers. You know, that's one of the several reasons uh, why we've had no real increase in wages, real wages after inflation, for, uh, you know, for at least 40 some years here under neoliberalism. No real wage increases in, in net inflation adjusted terms. Well, how do we get away with that? Well, you extend uh, credit and thus debt to working class families who then make their purchases and their standard of living based increasingly off of uh, off of credit and debt. And then the, the capitalists don't have to pay as much in terms of wage incomes. There, there are other ways that they've gotten away with this too. You know, uh, you just put more people to work in the family and therefore, you know, the family has more uh, total income even though wages aren't rising. And the capitalists like uh, credit and debt uh, to consumers because really, you know, when, when, when you borrow and you take on debt, what you are doing is agreeing to pay future wages. You've committed future wages uh, in interest payments, right? So uh, capitalism loves credit uh, as far as the consumer side, uh, you know, the worker side is concerned. They also love it uh, because it's a great way to create speculative wealth, uh, you know, assets, financial assets. You borrow money. You know, credit, debt, uh, in order to invest in financial asset markets. That kind of credit and debt does do, does nothing for the real growth of the system, you see. Uh, but it makes a lot of wealth creation for those uh, who have uh, money capital and assets to invest. Uh, and we've seen more and more of that occurring in recent decades as well. That, too, is part of the financialization uh, of capitalism in the 21st century. So uh, to summarize, uh, credit and debt uh, is great for the capitalists because they don't have to pay out wages as much. Uh, and it's also good for the capitalists because they can speculate in financial asset markets, both of which raise the wealth of capitalists, particularly finance capitalists, uh, who are really in the driver's seat in the last several decades in the U.S. and globally. Uh, finance capitalists, you know, uh, they've created all these markets, um, financial asset markets of all kinds, globally in connected instantaneously uh, uh, by the Internet and uh, uh, technology. And, you know, you eliminate all uh, regulations uh, on international money capital flows. You know, you deregulate the whole thing, and uh, you know they're they're amassing huge amounts of financial asset wealth uh, while holding down uh, payments uh, to labor in real terms. Uh, so, you know, I've talked about this before for the last ten years that it's becoming financialized, and what you've got now uh, is across the globe. Um, Maybe uh, a quarter million, maybe, you know, a half a million of the new finance capital elite. These are people who make at least $25 million uh, in uh, actual profit and cash flow here from their financial assets to be part of this club 
You know, you have to uh, be able to generate 25 million, uh, not in asset values, but in actual uh, cash flow from those assets. Uh, and, and they have a great influence globally here. Um, and, you know, their, their representatives have big influence in government. Uh, for example, you know, Goldman Sachs here under, uh, under Trump uh, pretty much ran uh, the Treasury and the government. Uh, and uh, they're the ones who created the $4.5 trillion in tax cuts for uh, the rich and their corporations and, and their markets. Uh, so they're just handing themselves uh, all kind of wealth in different ways while they try to hold the lid on wage incomes, you know, and sometimes they got to throw some money at that when you got like a COVID crisis or so forth, you know. But uh, it's the new finance capital elite globally uh, that is increasingly running the show as capitalism has become financialized. You know, Dr. Jack, the, I, th I think this is a great article. Once again, it's uh, it's on popular resistance. It's uh, called The End of Western Civilization, Why It Lacks Resilience and What Will Take Place by Michael Hudson. And that is they talk get into a couple of things that we don't normally talk about. We talk about debt, but we don't normally talk about there is an, uh, you know, it's like, oh, everybody's in debt. But there is an oligarchical elite class that we are all in debt too. And the other thing I think if you could talk about this is this whole thing, this neoliberal order has shifted the financial burden, the fiscal's burden to the lower classes. And so now, uh, you know, we hear always hear this socialism for the rich and then uh, good hard individualism for for the rest of us. But it shifts the um, th this whole fiscal burden and everything is now shifted to the lower classes and the oligarchical elite, for instance, in Wall Street, when they run a the government bails them out, Dr. Dr. Rasmus. Yeah, well, you should understand that the magnitude of debt by itself is not the problem. Uh, you know, some people, quasi-economists, even on the left, you know, think, oh, we got this big debt load. We got the, yeah, we got a big debt load. But it doesn't matter if the debt is used to finance a real investment that creates real jobs and real things. Right. That debt is OK. It's when you use debt to invest in financial assets, you know, fictitious financial assets, stocks and, you know, some bonds and derivatives and stuff like that, uh, that that debt is is uh, not good debt. Right. And what you see is uh, over time, real investment in real things uh, has slowed down in 21st century capitalism, while investment in financial assets, fictitious assets have accelerated. Uh, Hudson is right in his analysis of that. Uh, but, you know, I differ with Hudson on a number of issues. And one of them is, uh, well, what do you do about it? Well, Hudson says, well, let's just have a debt jubilee. You know, let's just forget and forgive all the debt. Well, as long as capitalism is in political power, you know, there's just a snowball in hell chance that's going to have, right? So calling for a debt jubilee is, is, is just naive nonsense. Uh, what you got to do is contest for the institutions of power if you want to get rid of that kind of finance capitalism. Uh, but, you know, it is, it is true. We're moving more and more in that direction. Uh, because capitalism is evolving. It always does evolve. Uh, and what you got now is uh, globally, 
this debt has built up everywhere in corporations and consumers and in governments. Uh, and uh, now when you have a recession or a financial crisis, now you don't have the cash flow to pay the principal and interest on that debt. You see, if you were building the real economy, you would be generating profits and wage incomes and so forth, which you could keep the payments going on more and more debt. But when you have a problem with, with a crisis, uh, you know, and a recession, and we've had several of those increasingly in frequency and serious uh, seriousness here, the debt you built up, uh, you don't have the cash flow to pay the principal and interest. And then that leads to defaults, which leads to bankruptcies, which lead to financial crashes. And I saw this statistic here um, recently, and I'll end on this, that was very interesting. Uh, I think it was Citigroup um, researchers said that there's at present $237 billion in dollarized bond debt in the world dollarized so that as interest rates go up in the U.S., the cost of paying that principal, the interest in particular, goes up. And those who had invested in that dollarized debt, uh, $237 billion, uh, can't make the payments and then they will default, right? And there's also 19 countries who are candidates now uh, for sovereign debt, government debt, uh, crises. And that's why they're talking about giving the IMF another $650 billion, it just gave them a couple years ago, to try to bail out these countries, these 19 uh, economies, you know, the worst of which is Sri Lanka, uh, but there's others, Pakistan and others, not so small, uh, are in the same boat, right? So it's when you can't finance the cash flow, the principal and interest, you don't have cash flow, that now you got the problem. Not debt itself, it's paying the debt in hard times. And then you have financial crises. And if we have a deep recession coming here, or prolonged recession, you're gonna see that problem in very risky kinds of corporate and government debt emerge. And that means you're on the road to another 2008-9 event. This discussion reminds me of listening to Donald Trump during the the campaign, and he was talking about debt, and he was talking about the power of debt, that his whole uh, uh, financial empire was built on debt. And I remember the adage being, when you, when you owe the bank $60, 60 million, the bank owns you. When you owe the bank $100 million, you own the bank. Yes, yes. Well, you know, his, as, as you say, his, his old business was built on debt. He borrowed from a lot of banks in the 90s uh, and after uh, to build his financial real estate empire. And, and then he reneged on the payments, you see. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and by the time he started running, well, even before that, uh, in politics, uh, he couldn't get a loan from American banks. <laughs> you know, he was he was a uh, you know a shyster. They 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 wouldn't loan to him anymore. So he so had to he go to, to Germany. Yeah, he had to go to Deutsche Bank, which uh, shielded all the money, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and the Deutsche Bank was the connection to the Russian oligarchs, which we haven't found out about yet. Uh, so, uh, you know, yeah, he 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 was a big wheeler dealer, a financial. Uh, um, Hustler. He was a hustler, you know, uh, and uh, he still is. He still is a hustler, I think. Uh, so, 
Yeah, a lot of them like him, though, have appeared in the last couple of decades. Uh, the thing I remember Tr Trump saying, though, it's interesting when they jumped on him about it. He basically said, and this is true, hey, don't hate, don't, don't hate the player, player hate, hate the, the game. game. <laughs> I didn't make up the rules. The rules are set. Yeah. So if you're a billionaire, you can bilk everybody and walk away. Yeah, yeah. You see, part of the problem is when you owe a lot of money to the bank, if the bank uh, uh, wants to, um, you know, call it in and, and have a confrontation with you and force you into bankruptcy when you owe so much, the banks don't want to do that. Right. Because if they force you into bankruptcy, then they have to take that bad debt onto their own balance sheets. They don't want to do that. So the bigger hustlers get away with it. The smaller hustlers don't. Dr. Jack Rasmus, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. I'm always ready to join you. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you are listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Outrage as Biden reportedly considers lifting ban on, quote-unquote, offensive arms sales to Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia and the UAE are fabulously wealthy oil states and do not need any aid, noted one progressive. U.S. weapons transfers are intended to throw our money to American arms corporations. For insight into this, we turn to our next guest. He's a Mint Press News contributing writer, published author, and human rights activist, born in Jerusalem. His latest books are The General's Son, Journey of an Israeli in Palestine, and Injustice, the story of the Holy Land Foundation 5. Miko Peled, as always, Miko, welcome back. Pleasure to be with you. Thank you. So as Joe Biden is preparing his visit to Saudi Arabia, he has just landed uh, in at Ben-Gurion Airport in Israel. Uh, peace and human rights campaigners are decrying a report that his administration is considering lifting its amorphous ban on the sale of quote-unquote offensive U.S. weaponry to the repressive monarchy. This, to me, Miko, is no more than a, than a Ponzi scheme or a money laundering operation in terms of the United States giving this, uh, the, transferring these weapons to, uh, to Saudi Arabia and, and the UAE. This is all just a way of funneling U.S. tax dollars to uh, the military industrial complex. What signals does this send to you, Miko Pellet? Well, that's a uh, that's a great question, and I don't think it's a secret that that uh, American foreign policy, uh, you know, is guided great, uh, to a large degree by the um, by the arms industry, by the weapons uh, manufacturers, because they need to make money and they provide jobs and they want to make a buck, and so that's 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 a reality that's uh, really not new. Um, and the president of the United States is coming to the Middle East, um, and the Saudis are probably going to be um, giving in on some issues regarding Israel, maybe full normalization, maybe a next step towards normalization. And you have to bribe them to do that because that's not something that um, Arabs 
people you know, in the Arab world are generally interested in doing, so they've got to bribe the regime, and weapons is a great way to bribe the regime. So I'm sure that these things are these things are all uh, tied together. And again, when the president, the president of the United States visits, something big has got to happen. Something big has got to be given, and something big has got to. He's able. He should be able to come back with something big as well. And so that's probably part of that uh, of that grand plan. Let me throw two things at you uh, real quick, Nico. Miko, number one. I think we're just talking about semantics anyway. When I saw the Saudis blowing up a school bus full of children with a Lockheed Martin missile, I suspect that one could interpret that Lockheed missile as an offensive weapon. That, that Bombs, they tend to be offensive weapons. Fighter planes that we're refueling, they're not defensive fighter planes because they're not over the airspace of Saudi Arabia. So, you know, the the issue of um, offensive weapons is, is absurd. And, and let me throw the other thing at you. I also suspect now that this the hot war seems to be waking back up between Yemen and the Yemen and Saudi Arabia. Yemen was very effective at attacking Saudi Arabia's oil infrastructure. I would suspect that will be their first target when this thing starts back up, as it appears to be. At any rate, your thought on those two things? Yeah, I mean you're absolutely right. I mean there's no question about that. This is this is all semantics. And um, and again, I think Trump uh, stated very clearly and unapologetically is that this brings in a lot of money and a lot of jobs. And so they the, the details of who gets killed and how and why and how it's used is less important than, than cutting the deal. And um, uh, then there is also the fact that um, Saudi Arabia has been using mercenaries that include child, uh, you know, children uh, soldiers uh, in, 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 in its wars. And so that's another issue that, of course, we need to, uh, that is kind of not being addressed. I believe this was in the New York Times. And so, you know, in order to, in order to cut the deal, in order to make this happen, then, um, you gotta, you gotta, you know, put aside whatever, whatever morals. And and actually, you know, at, at the, as as Biden landed in Tel Aviv, you know, he and the president of Israel and the prime minister of Israel and all the, you know, the people who stood there and spoke talked about human rights and our shared values of democracy and human rights. And of course, Israel is 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 the is the one place. You know, where, where, where its very existence, you know, is a contradiction to human rights. Its very existence is an abuse of human rights, is abuse of, ju- of, of, of justice and so forth. So this whole, re- the entire rhetoric surrounding this is, um, is made of lies. You have a piece in Mint Press entitled, As Biden Visits Israel, Netanyahu is Plotting a Return to Power. And you open your piece by writing, There is a line in a famous Hebrew poem written in 1903 by one of the most important Jewish poets, Chaim Nachman Bialik, which reads, God has commanded the spring and the slaughter together. The sun rose, the tree blossomed, and the butcher slaughtered. You write, I'm reminded of this line as I watch the preparations and the analysis surrounding the upcoming visit of U.S. President Joe Biden to Israel and Saudi Arabia. The fanfare goes on, and at the same time, the killing of Palestinians continues uninterrupted. Your thoughts, Miko Pellet? Well, yes. I mean, not a moment of, of thought, not a single dollar, not a moment of, of, of you know, airtime is being given to the fact that there is a slaughter going on. The Palestinians are being killed on almost a daily basis. 
Um, the story of uh, Shirina Bakhle is um, all but forgotten, except for a few people who still care. Uh, it's not mentioned. All they were talking about is um, who's going to meet him and who's going to speak and who's going to do this and who's going to do that. And, um, and, and, and as all the fanfare goes on and the red carpets and I'm sure the dinners and all of this, you know, people are being killed and nobody cares. There's like this complete discrepancy between these two realities, even though they're taking place all at the exact same time, the exact same place. And so, um, yeah, so that watching that as the days, as they're preparing for this, for, for today, for him landing today, and still, as it goes on, as the transfer goes on, he went to the Holocaust Museum, which, by the way, sits on the ruins of a Palestinian, town, a Palestinian village that was destroyed and was subjected to a massacre in 1948. And then he goes to meet this president and that, you know, all these different dignitaries and, and military facilities. And, um, and everything is supposedly fine and dandy as they stand there in their, in their pressed sh- shirts and suits. And there's a massacre going on. There are millions of people right there, right, you know, minutes away from where Biden is standing, who have no rights, who have no access to water, whose homes are being demolished, whose children are being tortured in prisons. And as though the two things are just parallel, they just happen to be happening at the same time because, you know, God or nature willed it that way. You know, the other thing, Miko, is they're acting as though everything's fine. Oh, he's going to Israel and we're going to have talks and blah, blah, blah. Israel is a very unstable country. Their government seems to have collapsed again. And every several months, their government seems to have fallen apart. There is no discussion in the U.S. about our great ally Israel, a country that has nuclear weapons, that is practicing apartheid against its uh, uh, neighbor or people in its country, and that is unstable and cannot maintain a government. True. They haven't been able to maintain a government for a very long time. That goes back to the particular system, parliamentary system, uh, where the, the, the representatives are not actually elected by the uh, constituents because the constituents vote for a party, not for a representative. And so say a party gets, I don't know, a certain number of seats, 10 seats, the party decides who goes in, who are the people that goes in. So the members of the Knesset the so-called representatives don't represent anyone but themselves. And so if their interests, as their interests shift, the government can rise and fall and nobody needs to go back. There's never really a need to go back and ask the constituents what they want uh, in particular. So this goes on and on and on. And, the, and the, it's kind of like a, a political musical chairs, which, again, will probably end up with the same kind of, you know, uh, indecision in the next elections. But, yeah, it is very, very unstable. Not to mention they're controlling millions of people uh, who have no rights. Not to mention that this government was just by a whole host of of of, um, of NGOs was uh, is being accused of practicing apartheid and a very brutal uh, type of apartheid. And Joe Biden lands there like he's in La La Land, like you know everything is everything is everything is fine. It's a great democracy. They called it a normal country. Some of the some of the analysts in the Israeli paper said, finally, we're a normal country. It's, it's, it's an absolutely maniacal, crazy reality. Uh, two things. One, the Washington Post describes Biden's trip to Israel uh, as, you know, Biden and Israel, they go way back. This is his 10th trip. When you combine those as a senator and as a vice president, this is his first trip as president. It's been 50 years and nearly 12 prime ministers. 
my question first is, with all of this history, it, and this is rhetorical, why doesn't Biden use his leverage for positive change instead of maintaining the status quo? And to your point about Shireen uh, Abu Akleh, it's interesting. I think Tony Blinken met with her family and agreed to have her family come to Washington to meet with Biden. The family asked Blinken, well, why don't we meet with Biden since he's here? And they said, nah, I don't think that's going to work. Hypocrisy of the highest order, Miko Pellet. Of course. And then he so he's 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 shaking the hands of, of a government that assassinated an American citizen, Shirina Barkley, who's a journalist. And he's going to go to Saudi Arabia and shake the hands of the people who slaughtered uh, Jamal Khashoggi and um, completely, completely ignoring both of these. And this is the, this is the American president. This is the president of the United States of America. Why are Americans sitting silent and letting this happen? Are they uninformed? Are they do they not care? I mean, have they forgotten what, you know, what the point of democracy was, was, and you know what I mean? And as the midterms are coming up, it's an opportunity to speak up. And then, you know, two years later, we have presidential elections. It's opportunity to speak up. You know, Joe Biden stood there in Tel Aviv airport, proudly saying, you don't have to be a Jew to be a Zionist. No, you don't have these rights. You don't have to be a Jew to be a Zionist. You have to be a racist to be a Zionist. <laughs> you have to have absolutely no care whatsoever for human rights for justice, for equality, for human life, in order to be a Zionist. And to say that with such pride, these, you know, these, there's a bunch of white guys standing there in suits, all of them proud of being, of being you know, genocidal racist. This is, this is an absurd, an absurd reality. And we're talking here, again, Shirina Bwakle and Jamal Khashoggi, and those two countries that he's going to visit, these were American, these, these people had, had held American citizenship. They were journalists doing mm -hmm. important work. They were highly regarded, well-known, high-profile journalists. They were killed, and there were no consequences. And the president is now visiting, and he's giving both of these countries more weapons, more aid, more guns, more uh, more money. It is absolutely it is absolutely unconscionable. Yeah, but Joe Biden does have a lot of concern for Alexei Navalny in Russia, a guy who was convicted of like embezzling three hundred thousand dollars from a French company. He's concerned with this guy, but actual American citizens who were murdered, eh, they don't really you know they don't really hit the mark for him. Yeah, and 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 and, and you know, Shirin Broccoli is not the first one. You know, it goes all the way back to Rachel Rachel Corey, and there were several others along the way. And um, and the, the, this 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 loyalty to Zionism, this loyalty to racism, this loyalty to the injustice, this loyalty to this you know apartheid regime has to stop. And unless uh, you know people speak up, unless these elections show some kind of support for something else, this is going to continue. And billions of American tax dollars are going to keep being poured into these dark regimes. Miko Pellet, as always, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Thank you, gentlemen. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned.
We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Orinoco Tribune has a piece entitled, Maduro Would Win Early Presidential Election, Latest Hinterlaces Poll. The most recent survey of June 22, carried out by Hinterlaces, showed that if Venezuela's presidential elections were next Saturday, 49% of those interviewed would vote for the current president, Nicolas Maduro. What does this say about the current political landscape in Venezuela and the impact of U.S. intervention in their politics? For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He's a widely acclaimed speaker, writer, journalist, and political analyst. He has traveled extensively in the Middle East and in Latin America. His latest book is entitled Kamala Harris, The Future of America, an essay in three parts. Caleb Maupin, as always, Caleb, welcome back. Sure. Glad to be here, as always. So to my question, what does this say about the current political landscape in Venezuela, as well as the impact of U.S. intervention in their politics and the region? Well, it shows that Maduro has really weathered the storm and that immediately after the death of Hugo Chavez, we saw the United States just turn on the screws against Venezuela make it so difficult for them to import basic commodities, food, toilet paper, etc., foment a crisis in the country, hoping that with Chavez dead and the cult of personality around him being so essential, uh, that they could then overturn the United Socialist Party and reverse the Bolivarian process. Uh, And when Donald Trump came into office, that really escalated. Um, And, you know, Donald Trump had John Bolton and others They were talking about, you know, the troika of tyranny and they were, you know, they had a a food caravan that got lit on fire and then it was revealed that was staged. But they were trying to use that to justify a military intervention. But since then, the Maduro government has continued to stay in power. They've defeated coup attempts. Uh, They have increased their relationship with the Islamic Republic of Iran. And now uh, the efforts by the the West to prevent food from getting into Venezuela have been have been largely thwarted because there's an Iranian supermarket uh, in in Caracas. And you have, you know, increased trade with China and Russia and other anti-imperialist countries. And at this point, uh, Maduro is popular because he got them through it. He got them through the hard times. Uh, Things are improving in Venezuela, and it's very clear that the opposition to Maduro uh, are in bed with the people that have been trying to make life miserable for Venezuelans. Uh, So at this point, uh, Venezuelan opinion of Maduro is this is a tough guy. He's a tall, tall man. I've met him, and he's a tall man. Uh, Bus drivers union leader for a long time, and now he's leading the country, and he got them through a rough spot. You know, what's interesting, Caleb, I talked to a friend of mine, this was maybe a year or two ago, we were talking about, and you know, and I was talking about my trip to Venezuela, and they were like, oh, yes, Maduro, I imagine the people are very unhappy with him. And I'm like, uh, no, just the opposite, in fact. You know, and I had to explain to him that the people from Venezuela are very knowledgeable of what's going on politically. You go to the little teeny you know, smallest town out in the middle of nowhere, and they understand, and they will tell you. It's not his fault. The United States is cutting us off and we're, you know, has cut us off economically. That's why we're suffering. And we're proud of him for standing up against them. That's what they specifically told me while the Americans here are getting propagandized to believe propagandized to believe that he's some kind of a mad dictator. In my assessment of of my time in Venezuela, it's about a third, a third, a third. You know, I'd say there's there's a third of the country that are, you know, opposition that think that Maduro is is leading the country in the wrong direction. 
And then you have a third of the country uh, that are indifferent, um, you know, that are, you know, they, they, they think it's better. Maduro's doing an OK job, but they're not really enthusiastic about socialism or whatever. They just like, you know, whatever works. I'm living my life. If, if things get better because of Maduro and Chavez, I can get some free health care, free college. That's nice. But then you have this other third of the country that are fanatical and dedicated and revolutionary. You go to the neighborhoods of central Caracas. Uh, you go to, to some of the other regions where, you know, conditions have just really been improved by the socialist programs, the healthcare clinics and the, and the policies uh, that have really, you know, resulted in, in bringing employment and education to these areas, people that have been brought, you know, really into the 21st century by socialist policies, you know, had their neighborhoods electrified, uh, you know, had, had modern, you know, modern housing, running water and electricity. I mean, I walked through a neighborhood in central Caracas, where every single home had been built by an interest-free loan from the Bolivarian government, and it was just this, this beautiful working-class neighborhood. Uh, and before that, the people had lived in shacks. And there is a layer of the population, the folks that are involved in those Bolivarian militias, uh, the folks that are setting up those colectivos and worker cooperative communes. And those folks, they are fanatical, and they will die for Hugo Chavez. They will die for the revolution if they need to. Um, and it's that solid core, that, that, that third of the population that is on board there. They're, they're down for the whole thing, as some 1960s radicals might say. Uh, that's what allowed Maduro to get through uh, to better times. And now things are definitely improving in Venezuela. They're, they're not as bad, anywhere near as bad as they were two or three or four or five years ago. And uh, Maduro has, has shown that he was correct. He said, we're going to get through this. We're going to white knuckle it. We're going to beat back the attempts of the imperialists. We're going to hold the military together. Uh, we're going to we're going to make sure people have what they need. We're going to finish the housing missions program, and he did it. Uh, and that is to be commended. And I think the Venezuelan public largely gives him credit for that. In looking at these polling numbers and what they indicate, and and, and I look at it then from the larger geopolitical perspective. The United States tries to overthrow Maduro, and now, again, 49% of those interviewed would vote for him next week. Uh, we look at what the U.S. tried to do in Syria with al-Assad. He got reelected, I want to say, with about 86% of the vote. Uh, we hear that President Xi is an authoritarian, and you look at the polling numbers, something like almost 90% of Chinese people like their government. And the same thing in Russia. I think President Putin has 86 percent approval rating and we were supposed to destroy their economy. And now the ruble is, is at the highest uh, 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 rate that it's been. These projects just don't work. Caleb Moppin. Sure. Well, people generally don't like it if you come into their country and mess with their country and make things bad because you don't like their leaders. Uh, people generally don't take kindly to that. Um, and the USA tries to make a lot of PR and blame the situation that they're creating with their sanctions, with their threats of war and regime change, uh, with their instability. They try to blame that on the domestic leader. But when it becomes clear this is coming from the United States because the United States is trying to tell you how to run your country, uh, that generally tends to create a bit of resentment. People don't particularly approve of that, and that tends to lead to more support for the policies uh, uh, that the leader is pursuing, uh, pushing independence, pushing socialism, etc. Additionally, um, John Bolton's been out running his mouth lately, and I'm glad because he's admitted that he was involved in attempted coups. And specifically, he said he brought up Venezuela. But then when they ask you, they, they ask any specific coups? Yeah, Venezuela. Oh, so you were involved in a coup in Venezuela? No, nah, no, nah, certainly not Venezuela. You know, it was fairly obvious what was going on. But your thoughts on John Bolton 
um, admitting the reality that he was involved in coups, that that's what the U.S. does. And as he said, it's hard work. Well, apparently it's real hard work because it didn't work so well in Venezuela. Caleb. Sure. Well, John Bolton comes out of neoconservatism, and he was part of the Trump administration, and then there was a falling out, and now he's considered part of the Biden camp, even though he's longstanding a Republican, a neocon. He's out of the Bush circles of the Republican Party. And I think what defines his wing of what you might call the deep state or the American power apparatus is that they want the United States to have the reputation of being a tough country that you don't mess with. I think the general prevailing opinion among the liberal CIA is we want the United States to look like a soft, friendly country that goes around promoting human rights and doesn't bother anybody. But among the Bush people, uh, there was very much a feeling that the United States should be known as a country that tortures. Don't mess with us or we're going to torture you. The United States should be known as a country with a big, huge military peace through strength. And I think Bolton, you know, bragging about being involved in coups on CNN, that reflects, you know, kind of what I would view as probably a minority opinion uh, within uh, the deep state apparatus. But it's very much associated with the neocons, which is we want to be known as tough guys you don't want to mess with. And who cares if the world likes us as long as they're afraid of us? But looking at this on the from the geopolitical landscape, from the larger, larger lens, that's I see Bolton talking for domestic consumption. But what does that say on the international stage, understanding that what he said was no surprise, but the fact that he said it so bluntly and so plainly to me speaks volumes. Sure. And I mean, it, it kind of shows that among Trump supporters and Republicans, there's kind of a divide. A lot of Trump supporters are isolationists. They say, well, you know, why mm-hmm. do we intervene in all these countries around the world? America first. Let's focus on our own problems. But there's another layer that are more into kind of the Reagan era conservatism. They want, you know, America to be strong again. They like coups, you know, uh, you know, you think back to the, you know, the oil crisis in the 70s. There were some folks saying, well, why don't we just invade the Middle East and go get their oil if they're charging us too much for it? Um, And I think that there's an effort on the part of of the neoconservative wing of the Republican Party that did not completely trust Trump to kind of stoke up those sentiments again of, you know, what's wrong with having the United States be a self-serving authoritarian militaristic power, uh, you know, when, you know, we're on that team, we'll be on the winning team, uh, you know, peace through strength, et cetera. Um, And I think that's particularly disturbing, uh, but that is more the John Bolton perspective. And John Bolton, you know, he tried to be in the Trump camp and he just couldn't stand it. Now he's in the Biden camp, but he's clearly a right dissident within the Biden camp, I think. And that's interesting because if we we don't have to go back too far to the Trump administration when Bolton said to Kim Jong-un, look, you don't want to go the way of Muammar Gaddafi. That was one. That's another very uh, uh, Bolton-esque quote. And then you flip that and you've got Biden saying about President Putin, this guy's got to go. And many interpreted that as we're going to have regime change in Russia. So in spite of these camps, there still does seem to be this consistency in mindset through administrations. We'll take you out if we have to. Well, sure. And I mean, it's also important to note that uh, Bolton did threaten to send Maduro to Guantanamo Bay. Uh, you'll remember that. He said that, you know, Maduro should just retire on the beach and, or else we'll send him to Guantanamo Bay or something to that effect. Um, It's also important to know that Gina Haspel, uh, who moved up to CIA director after Mike Pompeo Mm -hmm. was removed, uh, Gina Haspel was very much, uh, you know, she was known as the torture lady. um, And that that these folks, uh, again, how they want the United States to be perceived, not what the United States does, but Mm -hmm. how it's perceived. I think that's the primary difference. 
Caleb Moppin, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Sure thing. Always a pleasure. Folks, you've been listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for allowing our voices into your space. On behalf of myself and my co-host, Garland Nixon, we hope you were informed and enlightened. And we look forward to talking with you all right here tomorrow on Radio Sputnik. Be safe. Peace and blessings. We're out. 